Let's begin by turning to the Lord in prayer. Father, again tonight I'm conscious of my own weakness. And I come and ask that you would enable me to communicate your truth. That we all together might be encouraged to pursue you even in the midst of affliction. Father, I come and ask tonight that you would cause us in a, in a very unique way to see your goodness. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just um, by way of announcements, I have for the last two weeks said we might tentatively do a Q&A on the last session. I am actually canceling the Q&A because I've not received any questions. So it's kind of hard to do a Q&A if you have no questions to answer. That must mean I'm doing a really great job of answering all your questions. And I'm just kidding. Um, next week will be our final Monday night meeting uh, for the fall, and I will just do a, a regular session for that. We've been thinking about God's purposes in suffering, and particularly His purposes in suffering in the life of a believer. Okay, that's, that's been really what we've been thinking about. And we began the series by thinking about how suffering changes us. God does a work in us. He sanctifies us. He sometimes exposes sin in us through suffering. And then we looked at the last couple weeks how God not only does a work in us, but he does a work through us. That as we respond rightly to suffering, that can bring encouragement to other believers. It can also, suffering can create a platform, an opportunity to share the gospel. And what I want us to do tonight and next week is I want to end the series by turning our attention on God and upon eternity and how suffering changes our perspective on God and on eternity. Tonight we're going to See how suffering redefines our conception of what is good. And next week, Lord willing, I want us to end by considering how suffering prepares us for glory. Uh, There's a relationship in the New Testament between suffering and glory, and we want to explore that in our final session. And you see there in your notes that suffering demands a response. And I believe it's really not possible for us as human beings to be neutral towards God in the face of suffering, tribulation, affliction. Uh, Suffering by its very nature is going to demand a response. It's going to provoke a reaction. And it will do either one of two things. It will either push you towards God in dependence and trust, or it will push you away from God, maybe even becoming bitter towards God. Now, I want you to think about the relationship between those two reactions and pride and humility. You see, to trust God in the midst of affliction is to actually exercise humility. To resist God in suffering is to be proud. What is pride? Pride is a failure to understand and accept my place in the created order. There's a lot of different ways you could define pride and humility, but here's how I'm going to define it. Pride is a failure to understand and accept my place in the created order. 
You flip that around and you get a definition of humility. Humility is understanding and accepting my place in the created order. It's understanding that God is the creator and I'm not God. (laughs) I'm the creature. I'm beneath him. He made me and he has a right to do what he pleases with my life. There's There's an understanding there. Now, when we reject God, when we turn against God in the midst of suffering, in essence, we're saying, I don't want this suffering. I don't deserve this suffering. I don't need it. I don't need your help, God. My life doesn't need your master touch. I'm doing okay. Thank you. Life is better, in fact, without all this suffering. That's pride, a response of pride. But then when I begin to understand who I am, and I accept my place before God, he's the creator, I'm the creature, then it's like I begin to come to my senses. And then I can begin to trust God's wisdom in suffering. See, humility reasons more like this. I'm not God. I'm his creation. I don't know what's best. He knows what is best. Therefore, I must trust him. I must submit to him. I must run to him. I need you, God. I need your work in my life. I want your work in my life. Your purposes are good. Now, how does God respond to our response? (laughs) How does God respond to the proud, to the humble? Well, God says he resists the proud. And what does he do? He gives grace to the humble, right? He resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. So, in essence, pride is a rejection of God's grace. Pride is a rejection of God's grace. But if we will humble ourselves under his mighty hand, if we'll accept the circumstances of his choice in in our lives, if we will trust him, he will sustain us with his grace. He will exalt us and lift us up. Now, sometimes our response to suffering is a little bit more complex and nuanced. It's not as black and white. It's not, I reject God or I trust God. It can be somewhere sometimes in between, can it not? That when the suffering first comes into our life, we respond perhaps with doubts and questions and struggles. But then eventually we get to a place where we trust God and we turn to him in humility. And that is the passage that we have before us. It really leads us on a journey, a journey from doubt to faith, a journey that leads really from pride, a response, a proud response to a humble response. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, we're going to be in Psalm 73 uh, tonight. And the Psalms are encouraging. I I find the Psalms encouraging because they don't just give us propositional truth, but they take us on a journey. They are personal testimonies of people who have gone from places of doubt to places of faith, places of error to truth, from discouragement to worship, and express our own struggles and lead us to faith. Now, Psalm 73 speaks to a particular struggle, a common struggle. It speaks to the struggle of wrestling with the goodness of God. Is God good? Yes, of course, God is good. 
Is God good to me personally? Uh, <laughs> a little more difficult. You could call this psalm Asaph's journey of faith. Now, who is Asaph? Just a little bit of context. Asaph uh, is a man who was commissioned by King David, the, the, the king in the Old Testament, as a person who's meant to be a worship leader. Okay, He's, He is to lead God's people in worship, and as a worship leader, he wrote psalms of worship and faith to God. And this is one of those psalms. And this particular psalm is written in the first person, I, me. And it communicates Asaph's personal testimony of his struggle to believe in the goodness of God. Now, you're going to see a movement in this psalm from a prideful response at the beginning to a more repentant, humble response at the end. And you're going to note as well as we go through this psalm that it is almost as if it's, it's as the psalmist humbles himself that he begins to see more clearly what God is doing in his suffering. In other words, it's only as you submit to God's work in your life, it's only as you humble yourself under his mighty arm that you begin to see clearly, more clearly, what he is doing. Submission, humility, go hand in hand with seeing and understanding God's purposes. So we're going to work through the psalm. You have the outline in your hands. Hopefully, we're going to look at five major points. We're going to see a truth. It begins with the truth. And then we're going to see a seeming contradiction to that truth, which leads Asaph then to be tempted, tempted to respond in the wrong way. And then that will lead to the solution and then back around to the truth. Now, tonight, I think we will best be served by reading not the entirety of the psalm at once, but we'll read the psalm in sections as we work our way through the psalm, okay? Psalm 73. Let's begin reading verses 1 and 2. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, here's the but, but, as for me, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. God is good. Yes, of course. God is good. God is good to me. Not sure. Not so sure. I kind of feel like I'm an exception to the rule. Asaph begins objective truth. He knows he's right. That's the right answer, right? God is good. Of course he's good but he didn't feel like it was right. In fact, there were hundreds of voices in his mind saying, that's not true. That's not true. God isn't good. I wonder if you've ever been there where your experience doesn't seem to line up with what is true. Your experience seems to contradict what God says. Where you know the right answers, but you're really having a hard time believing the right answers. A few psalms back in Psalm 19, it's a psalm where David praises the perfection of God's revelation. We read statements like, the law of the Lord is perfect. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And then a little later on, we read in verse 11, by them your servant is warned. And then you read this, and in keeping them, there is great reward. 
in keeping God's commandments, there is great reward. Well, Psalm 73, the psalm we're looking at, is really a psalm that questions that statement. Is there really a reward for keeping God's commandments? Asaph is struggling to believe that God rewards the righteous. He looks around. He sees the wicked prospering. They seem to be doing great. He, on the other hand, he's trying to follow God. He's trying to obey God. He's trying to do the right thing. And he's experiencing nothing but affliction. Is there really a reward for keeping God's commandments? More fundamentally, is God good? Fundamentally, is God good? The longer I live, the more I think that this is one of the fundamental questions that we need to wrestle with in the life of faith. Is God good? If you think about it, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, that was the temptation to doubt the goodness of God. And it continually persists as one of the fundamental doubts or temptations. It's the temptation to believe that God is not good. Is God good? Does he seek the well-being of his people? Is he seeking your well-being, my well-being? Can I trust him? Can I trust him? wonder tonight if you doubt God's goodness towards you personally. Have you ever felt like Asaph, like God was against you? Maybe you felt perhaps like God was seeking to destroy you, to undo you. Well, why is Asaph feeling this way? Why is he experiencing these emotions and these struggles? Well, there's this seeming contradiction in front of his face. The wicked seem to be experiencing good. I'm being afflicted, but the wicked out there, they seem to be doing all right. So read with me verses 3 through 12. 3 through 12. For I, he says, was I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God their knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Look how the unbelievers prosper. And these people don't even pretend to follow God. Look how well they're doing. They make no pretense about their wickedness. If you you read this section, 3 through 12, you'll notice that two big things are emphasized. And you see them there in your notes. First, the prosperity of the wicked. And secondly, the wickedness of the wicked. They're doing really great and they're really bad. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the point that's being made here. Look at their prosperity. Well, there's, there's no suffering, no pangs in their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That means they've got plenty to eat. Uh, they're healthy, chubby. They're not in trouble. As other people are troubled, they're not plagued as the rest of mankind. That is, they, 
they do all this wickedness and they seem to get away with it. And look at verse 12. They're always at ease and they increase in wealth. They have all this prosperity and they seem to just be doing just great. But then look as well at the wickedness of the wicked. You can make a list here. They're proud. They're violent. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, they scoff. That is, they mock. They speak with hatred. They threaten. They curse God. They speak against heaven. Verse 10 and 11 are difficult. And I'll just recognize that right off the bat. They're difficult. Probably the best way to understand verse 10 and 11 is that what it's saying here is that the wicked have such power and influence that God's people, or at least those who call themselves God's people, actually turn to the wicked and begin following their way. And they themselves start questioning whether God even cares, whether God even sees and notices. It's the power and the influence that they have. And for all their wickedness, they seem to get away with it. And that leads to a temptation. A temptation that begins to well up in Asaph's soul. Look at verse 13 through 16 with me. Verses 13 through 16. Surely in vain (laughs) I have kept my heart pure. I've wasted my time trying to obey God and washed my hands in innocence. Why? For I've been stricken all day and chastened every morning. Now, if I had said this, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. So what is Asaph experiencing? What's, what's going through his mind and his heart? I kept my heart clean. You know, I've done all the right things. I followed you, Lord. I've obeyed you. And here I am. I'm stricken all day and rebuked every morning. Now, we don't know exactly what Asaph is going through. We don't know the exact affliction that he is facing. But it does seem to be pointing to some kind of long-term suffering. Because he describes it. As every, every morning I wake up, I'm, I'm rebuked by this suffering. I'm rebuked by it. And all day long, I feel stricken and tormented. And this leads to two sinful or two wrong responses. The first response, you go back to verse 3. He mentions it there, is envy. You see verse 3? For I was envious of the wicked. The word envious expresses a very strong emotion whereby a person desires some quality or possession of another. In other words, I want what you have. I want what you have. I would, maybe I would be better off if I didn't live for God because those people don't live for God and they have all the things I want. They have a pain-free life. And that's what I want. Does that make make sense? So envy is the first wrong response. But then as you look at verse 13 and 14, where he says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, you see another response. You see a response of self-pity. Self-pity that leads to bitterness. Poor me, you know. I've done the right things and look what I got for it. 
What's the point of living for you, God? All I get is misery and pain and trouble. What, what difference does it make to believe in God? What difference does it make to obey Him? The more I pray, the worse things get. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Better stop praying, because the more I pray, the worse things get. I could come up with lots of illustrations. I'll just throw, describe a scenario to you. Think of a, a mother with small children, young children. She hasn't been sleeping well. The children have been sick and getting up in the night. She's exhausted. Seems like the children have been sick forever. She just found out that morning that the AC and her it's going to cost it's going to cost a lot of money to get it fixed. It's broken, over a thousand dollars. Her husband just found out that he might be let go because the company's cutting back on their workers, and and just she's feeling overwhelmed. And it's the afternoon. She's getting her kids. She's got her kids down for a nap. They're all quiet. She makes herself a cup of tea. She sits down into the recliner. She just wants a little bit of space to think, to pray, to read her Bible, to get her thoughts in order. And then the doorbell rings. The UPS truck is making a delivery. She freezes. She waits. And then the inevitable cry from the back. And again, a flood of thoughts begin to come into her mind. This is too much for me. I can't handle this. Lord, I just need a little rest. What are you doing to me? Why are you attacking me? What did I do to deserve this? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe because of something really big that's happened in your life or maybe just a lot of little things in your life? Have you ever turned or been tempted to turn towards envy or self-pity in the midst of affliction and suffering? I know I have. I'll just say it. I have. Well, what's going on here back in the text? What is Asaph being tempted with? He's being tempted to have a worldly definition of good. A worldly definition of of what is good. See, if God were good to his people, then I would be experiencing what the wicked are experiencing. I would be experiencing prosperity, a trouble-free life, health, abundance, riches, security, whatever you want to put there. That's what I would be experiencing. And implied is the idea that they have it and I don't. You know, God's being good to them, but he's not being good to me. But then Asaph says something interesting. Look at verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, if, if I had continued to entertain these thoughts, these ideas that God is not good and all this, and I'm, I'm being treated unfairly, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He comes to this point where he says, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm tempted to envy. I'm tempted to self-pity and bitterness. But I know deep down inside that I cannot deny God's goodness. That I cannot turn my back on God. Because if I did that, if I turned my back on God like wicked, I would be, look what he says there, I would be betraying whom? You'd think he'd say, I would be betraying God, but he doesn't say that. He says, I would be betraying the generation of your people, the generation of your children. It's very interesting, isn't it? 
Think about what we've been learning the last couple of weeks. How we react to suffering, how we respond to temptation, affects those around us. If I deny God in my suffering, I betray you. That make sense? It has an effect on you. Your faith in suffering can bolster another's faith in the midst of suffering. And Asaph realizes that. If I had continued down this line and I had rejected God like the wicked, I would be betraying God's people all around me. To deny God is not just to deny, is not just to betray God, but to betray each other. And then he says in verse 16, look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, I was trying to wrap my mind around this. How can it be? How can it be that God is good and yet I'm experiencing so much affliction and, and they aren't walking with God, but they seem to be doing really good as I try to ponder this and understand this. What does he say? It was troublesome in my sight. How do I put all this together? You see, as long as Asaph applied his own mind, his own thinking, his own understanding, he's troubled, he's oppressed. He knows his thinking is wrong, but he's really having a hard time reconciling God's truth with his own experience. And the reality is, as long as we apply our own reasoning, our own finite perspective on our suffering, we're going to be troubled. We will be troubled. We need revelation from God in the midst of suffering. We need revelation from God. And this is the turning point in the psalm. It's the hinge, as it were, of the psalm. So I'm going to begin again reading verse 16, and then I'm going to go forward to verse 24. Verse 16, when I pondered it to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until, that's an important word there. Until, until I did something. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then, as I drew near to God, I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them. Who are the them here? It's the wicked. You cast the wicked down to destruction. How the wicked are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph begins by turning from his thoughts to God's thoughts. It's the first thing he does. You see, Asaph's circumstances were confusing. They were troublesome until he entered into the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary of God here is the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple is that place where God manifested his presence. To go to the sanctuary is to draw near to God. It's to seek God. It's to 
bring your troubles to God. That's what Asaph does. He brings the perplexity of his mind, his troubles, his struggles. What does he? He brings it all to God. Brings his questions to God. And so I would ask you tonight, do you bring your troubles to God? When affliction is troublesome, do you draw near to God and do you unburden your heart to him? Do you turn to him in your troubles? Well, as Asaph turns his thoughts to God's thoughts, what happens? That's the next step there in your notes. His perspective widens. His perspective widens. See, up to this point, Asaph has been nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. Take my glasses off, and you guys are all one big blur. A nice blur, but a big blur, okay? And I put them on, and I can see. Now, up to verse, i got to look closely, up to verse 16, it's like he didn't have his glasses on. He's not seen very well, and he's troubled by that. And then as he approaches God, draws near to the sanctuary, he puts the glasses on, he begins to see more clearly. He begins to see further out. The blinders, in a sense, are taken off. He begins to lose that peripheral vision, uh, the, the, the tunnel vision. He has, begins to have peripheral vision, and he grasps the bigger picture. What does he grasp? He grasps that goodness is not simply about my earthly experience. This is really, really important. Goodness is not just about my earthly experience. It involves my eternal experience. So goodness is more than just what happens to me on this earth and the 70 or so years God gives me. Goodness has to encompass what happens in all of eternity. And my eternal experience far outweighs anything I will ever face on this earth. It far outweighs any suffering I might face on this earth. And whatever their present experience of good, the end of the wicked is nothing but destruction and terror. So Asaph, as he draws near to God, he begins to see the bigger picture. He begins to see there is an eternity. He begins to see there is a judgment to come. There is a day of reckoning. And from the vantage point of eternity, the wicked don't seem to be in such a good place after all. They don't seem to be in such a great place after all, do they? How do you cure envy? Envying the wicked. How do you cure self-pity? Well, if you're struggling with these, ask God for an eternal perspective. See the bigger picture. They may be doing okay right now, but what about the bigger picture? What about the judgment to come? Is God good? Don't make a judgment call without taking eternity into account. And so Asaph turns to God. His perspective widens. And then he begins to see that his prior reasoning was really pretty foolish, pretty ignorant. He sees the folly of his thinking. Look at verse 21. 21 when my heart was embittered, He talks about it there. I was embittered. I was experiencing bitterness. And I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. 
when I was embittered, when I was envious, when I was full of self-pity, I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I had the mind of an animal. That's what he's saying. I had the mind of an animal. Now, how, how do animals, how do they act? What's, being, what's the parallel here? Animals, I don't know much about animals. I don't like animals. I like animals. I tell my kids, I like animals in their natural habitat. Okay, so, um, but, but animals respond to treats, right? You, you, how do you train a dog, for instance? Well, you, 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 I don't know much about this, but you, you, you t- get them to do something and then you give them a treat, right? And, and, you, and you affirm good behavior and you punish bad behavior. And, and as long as you keep giving them the treat, well, they'll do what, what you want. And Asaph, in a sense, is saying, I was like a dog expecting you to give me treats for doing the right thing, you know? Oh, good little boy. Let me give you some more money. Oh, good little boy. I'll give you, uh, I'll give you health. Oh, good little girl, you know? How, how about a pain-free life? And Asaph realizes that he was relating to God on the basis of earthly temporal rewards. That's how he was relating to God. Instead of on the basis of trust and relationship with God. And I, Asaph says, how foolish. He says, I don't follow God because he gives me treats. I follow God because he came after me. He saved me. He forgave me of my sins. He sent his son to die for me. He caused me to know him and love him and trust him. Why do I love God? Because he first loved me. See, I love and follow God because God has given himself for me. God has given himself to me. That's why I follow him. And then Asaph, it's quite something, verse 23, Asaph realizes that God had never left him. Look at the, look at the end of 22. I was like a beast before you. 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. See, not only had God not left him, but even in the midst of his envy and self-pity and doubting and struggle, God had been with him even then. He had been with him all along. He had been upholding him. Look at verse 23. Upholding him with his right hand. He had been giving him counsel, guiding his steps in order that he might one day receive him into his glorious presence. What if you realize that your heavenly father who appoints suffering in your life has a good and loving purpose for it? He has a good and loving purpose. And his ultimate goal is to receive you to glory. I love that. Verse 24, and afterwards, receive me to glory. Lord willing, we're going to think a little bit more about that aspect of glory next week. In the midst of suffering, God is with you. God is with you. He's holding you by his right hand. He's guiding you by his counsel. You might say, well, what what is God's purpose in suffering? What is God's purpose in suffering? Well, as we've noted in these sessions, God has many purposes in suffering, right? 
God is doing many things. But one of them, the one we want to think about tonight, one of God's purposes is to bring you and to bring me to a place where we can say with Asaph what we read in verses 25 through 28. Suffering can bring you to a place where these words, verses 25 through 28, are true of you, are true of your experience. Let's read them. Read them carefully. Look at the very first things Asaph says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And then this is startling. And beside you, I desire nothing on the earth. Quite some, you see how his perspective's changed? At the beginning of the psalm, he's looking out like, man, they've got, they've got everything. They've got all the toys. They've got all the, the health. They've got, they've got everything. And here at the end of the psalm, he says, I don't want anything on earth. All I want is you, God. I want you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they're going to perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What's good? The nearness of God, having God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Nearness of God. Nearness to God is my good. I want you to notice how Asaph here at the end of the psalm shifts his attention from good to God. In a sense, as you read at the very beginning of the psalm, the very first line, Psalm 73, verse 1, surely God is good. God is good. The emphasis is on good. God is good. And he's good and he ought to be good according to my definition of good. (laughs) God is good. And he should be good according to what I think good is. But here at the end of the psalm, the emphasis has changed. It's no longer God is good. But the emphasis now is God is good. God is good. God is my good. God is the good of his people. And as the emphasis changes from the beginning of the psalm to the end, good is being redefined. Do you see that? How good is being redefined? Ultimate good is not a trouble-free life. Ultimate good is not prosperity, financial security, or health, or experiencing the pleasures, all the pleasures that this world has to offer. Ultimate good is knowing God. That's what Asaph is coming to. Ultimate good is knowing God. Ultimate good is possessing God. Ultimate good is being near God. But as for me, it is good to be near God. And this new definition of good sheds new light on suffering. 
we see that suffering is beneficial because it causes us to desire what is truly valuable. It causes us to desire what is truly valuable. Not health, not wealth, but God himself. God himself. Suffering is beneficial because it causes us to know God's nearness. It's in the midst of suffering that we can know the nearness of God. Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of shadow of death, you are with me. You're with me. Suffering also exposes our weakness. Does it not? Suffering exposes how weak we really are, how frail. And God does that so that we might depend on him and experience his mighty power. Look at verse 28 again. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Would Asaph have, would he have made the Lord God his refuge if he had not experienced this affliction? Probably not. But he experiences God as his refuge because of his affliction. And finally, the last line is fascinating, isn't it? I've made the Lord God my refuge that, here's the purpose, that I may tell of all your works. And it reminds us of what we've been thinking about last couple weeks. That suffering also has a purpose in that it sends us out to speak to others. Suffering gives us something to talk about. Think about it. If God had not sent affliction into Asaph's life and caused him to struggle, we would not have Psalm 73 in our Bibles. We would not have the blessing of this psalm. Asaph. The, the suffering, in a sense, the sufferings of Asaph still speak today. They still have value today. Where are you at tonight? Let me ask you this question. What is your definition of good? That's an important question as we wrap things up tonight. What is your definition of good? Are you nearsighted tonight, struggling with envy, self-pity? Or do you have an eternal perspective? Have you, have you turned to God? Let me ask you this question. Do you doubt the goodness of God because of what you are experiencing in life? Do you doubt the goodness of God? Remember what I said even several weeks ago, you can't blame God and trust God at the same time. You can't do both. Doubting God's goodness is going to undermine our capacity to trust God. In other words, if you're going to trust God, you have to believe that he's good. Fundamentally good. And the psalm here goes deeper. He's not just good because he gives good things. But he's good because he himself is good. He is our good. To have him is to experience goodness. And so I want to encourage you tonight to do what Asaph did. Draw near to God. Go into his sanctuary. Pour out your troubles to him. Get honest with him. And ask him for his perspective on your suffering. 
Ask him to redefine goodness for you. What is good? Ask him to the enabling to be able to see with the eyes of faith. You see, in the midst of suffering and affliction, God is offering you something far better than any earthly blessing. God is offering you himself. He's offering you himself. Let's bow our heads. And tonight, let's, let's just pause again, just for a minute or two. Good to pause. Ask yourself, what is God saying to me? What is my definition of good? Do I believe that God is good? That he is good? In the midst of suffering tonight, I encourage you to just turn your heart to God. Be honest with him. Asaph was honest. He talks about his envy, his self-pity, his questions, his bitterness. Be, Be honest with God. Cry out to him. Turn to him. Father, we thank you for how you use suffering in our lives. To wean us off of searching for all the things that this world can give us. And to turn our hearts towards you. That we might find in you everything that we desire. Work your purposes out in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.